Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Still playing pickleball, still playing golf, and rowing every day. That's about the only way to stay alive. I was helping um, Carril Cuatro, which is a big club in, uh, in Guadalajara, <clears throat> as both a consultant and doing some camps and things like that for them. Luis Loeps was the general manager at that point in time, and he's one of my former swimmers, and and he's since moved to Canada. Um, so that relationship sort of went away. And well, it, Guadalajara, is, Guadalajara is very difficult to get into these days because of traffic. I live in Chapala, Mexico, which is without any traffic, it's probably a 40 minute, 45 minute drive from Guadalajara, south of Guadalajara, on the largest lake in Mexico. 60 years as a coach in, in the sport, most of it at the top level. Um, been president of the American Swimming Coaches Association and board member of United States Swimming uh, for three terms. Um, I've coached most of my career in the United States, but I coached also in Canada, um, was part of their national group. Um, and, uh, and then when I'm, when I moved down here to Mexico, I worked with the national team here and also with as primarily the head coach of, of Jalisco. We have, we have what's called the national games here in Mexico. It's, it's under a different terminology, but it's a, uh, it's an all sport, all sport competition, um, and uh, we, we led Jalisco. Jalisco has won now for, I think, 18 or 19 years here in Mexico. And when I was here, we, we most certainly led swimming uh, by far. I think our, our second year, my second year here, we had something like 37 or 38 gold medals in swimming alone. So, and that's how it's it's scored basically by medals, by gold medals, very similar to China. And then I coached in China twice and did clinics throughout Asia. So you have a lot of experience. Um, obviously Cincinnati, Pepsi Marlins, people probably don't, um, people might not remember that unless they're um, a little bit older. Um, at that time, I think, the hardest thing to, to know about that trip is how well you did and how, and I, I guess we can talk a little bit about this, is how to make a board of directors happy. And I don't know that there's an answer to that because of how successful you were. And that's a good example of how successful you were, but how, um, how, the, how the board was in, sort of insatiable or had other ideas about what was important. Could you tell us a little bit about that? 
Well, I don't really want to get into the weeds in terms of of Cincinnati. I mean, it it just it was a bad scene at the end. We had a phenomenal year with Hudipol on the Olympic team, five finalists in the in the trials, and and uh, all our swimmers at at the national championships that year were all finalists and. Uh, so it was a very successful year and it was a surprise to me to see me get canned. Um, but it was political and it, it just reminds me of the importance and of the weaknesses of our coaching organizations in not striving to get coaches to own their own programs. This is probably the most important thing that, that our coaching organizations could do is train people to take over programs. Boards of directors are fine if they're in the right venue, meaning they're there to fundraise and stay away from the sport of swimming. If I was to put the ideal board of directors together, it would be outside of swimming parents. It would be business people, accountants, lawyers, doctors, et cetera people in, in business themselves. Um, but that's not the easiest thing to do either. Um, our, our whole club structure in the United States has been founded on basically parents starting swim programs and, and becoming part of United States swimming, et cetera, et cetera. I still think that's a mistake, um, but it is what it is. Yeah, I, I think John Urbanchek told me one time, whoever owns the pool owns the program, no matter what you think, if they own the pool. And it's so hard to own a pool. I mean, I, I think you're right. I think I think uh, I think you're absolutely right. And I've been not so much canned, but but frustrated by I just watched Schubert go through it. And, you know, if, if Schubert can go through it, anybody can. Um and, you know, who turned right around and started his own team um, with Brad. But but um, but that's the kind of thing we have to learn how to do. But nevertheless, if at any time they lose their water, you know, he's he's got he's kind of got nothing is Murray Stevens gets frustrated, um, you know, by the situation, decides to sell his house and build a pool. Um, and then North Baltimore is, you know, famous since then. I, I bet there's some stories of guys trying to do that and failing but um i mean i don't know i don't i don't know i don't know that us i don't i agree with you 100% that the coaching organizations are not preparing us and you know here i am at 69 um i was never prepared to do what uh, what you just said and and uh, sort of frustrating how do you do it how do you prepare coaches to be that way to to be ready to be able to run a business well first of all it takes I think regressing to the coach themselves, it takes some entrepreneurial guts. You, you've got to be able to say to yourself, hey, I want, to, I want to run my own club. And regressing to what you just mentioned about a swimming pool, that's where contracts come in. And, you know, a, a, smart, a smart coach who can get a pool isn't going to sign a contract for a year. 
it's going to be a 10-year or 12-year, 15-year cycle. Um, and there are ways to do that. I mean, in terms of how much maintenance will you take care of? How much maintenance will I take care of? What kind of income do you need? What do I need, et cetera? And that just comes down to skills. And we just don't have any, any training in business. And, and that's where I think the coaching organizations need to. I know ASCA with John Leonard periodically through some business courses in there and so forth and so on. But um, that needs to be every year. and It needs to be a, a real important part. And United States swimming is, is weak also. They, they can't seem to want to get on board with that kind of a concept at all. They don't reject people who, who own their own programs. Right. But I, I don't see any encouragement coming from United States swimming. Right. No, I, yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I would, I love to get into that. And I think it's an important and an imperative. Um, we just saw, I just, I was just with Ron Aiken, as I think I told you, and we're, he, uh, he's asked me to help him build software to replicate what he's been doing. He's like, I want to lose this. I'm, you know, we're having a, they're, they're probably the top, the top producing club right now. I would just say the top producing club in America, maybe in the world. Um, when I watched them warm up the other day, I was just amazed at how great they are and how, you know, he is not even holding a stopwatch. He said, I don't even pace because we pace every day. And so they know their paces. So I don't pace at meets. And I was, wow, that's unique. Um, I tell people not to look at their stopwatch and, and take splits because they need to be seeing their swimmer actually make that turn and break out. Anybody can take a split, but not everybody has the eye of a coach. But as we were discussing you know, he's a perfect icon for what USA Swimming is doing wrong, as far as I'm concerned. They're doing a lot right at the national level and having dinner with Mike Parado and his wife the other uh, last week. Um, they were talking about how, how superior USA Swimming is in, in getting the national people exactly where they need to be at the Olympics and stuff compared to USA Diving. This is another discussion, but they said, they said you know, we don't even realize you know, that, that that's that's where they're strong. But I said, here's where they're weak. Exactly what you just said is you get someone who's doing an incredible job and Ron Aiken. I mean, I don't know what you would have to do to get on the Olympic staff, but five of his swimmers and not not including uh, his breaststroker uh, who missed the team uh, was on the team and he was not invited. And by the way, since then, the Australians have invited him to be on their national team and said that he'll never miss a national meet ever i mean they're, they're they're needling this and we had that discussion about how a swimmer a parent of one swimmer i had that discussion with mark and he said um they thought they they were thinking about the scoring and that, that michael andrew would score more and so put peter on the team instead of ron because he put a lot of people on the team but they didn't know that they he'd score so well um but i think it comes down to what you just said is how how do we get either an organization or you and me or competitive swimmer, whatever, to help the rank and file coach who wants to be good and effective and run an effective um, business program to get reinforced and, and get the education it takes. And as you said, maybe annual re-education it takes to be really good. And when you watch um, the uh, American, the U.S. Swimming School Association, 
they have all these fun things where the best of the best, but they're all business people get together and they maybe go on a cruise or they, you know, I just, just think we have so far to go. And why after all these years, and, and you've been in the leadership, so maybe you can help with that. If, if I could go backwards and, and I was the dictator, <laughs> um, I mean, I set up, I set up as, as a board member way, way back in the 1980s, I set up an organizational scheme uh, where we would divide the country into, obviously we were in LSCs and so forth and so on, but where we would have leadership from the top, right? In United States swimming as the quote, technical director or national coach, whichever it happened to be. And, and in each, and in each area divided into four, I can't remember exactly how I laid it out, but divided into four, we'd have four people working underneath that person and then one in each LSC. So everything came top down, bottom up, right? Where you had communication going all the way through. Instead, United States swimming moved into the quote consultant, the consultancy area where they, they sent five or six coaches. I personally thought that was a major waste of time mm. because in, in some cases, um, I'm not going to name names, but in some cases they went in and they just took over the program for three or four days and then they ran the workouts and so forth. I, I don't see how that teaches anybody anything, but by mm -hmm. the same, um, that's what happened. And others went in a number of the consultants, in my opinion, had virtually no experience at the top level of the sport. And, and so what they were doing, I don't know. I, I heard many, many, many complaints from coaches who had consultants come in. Um, I'm sure there was some value. Um, what it is, I don't know. But what should be happening is if somebody is going to come in and mentor a coach is to teach them how to work with people, right? Not just the athletes, but work with people work with the community, work with the media, um, which is, we are terrible at that. Mm. Just terrible. And that's the first thing I ever did when I went in to take over a new program is I'd get on the phone and I'd find somebody through communication with various people in the community. Who, who, who should I contact at this newspaper or, or TV station or whatever? And Go out to lunch with them, have, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Talk to them and build a community around your program. Um, that is, is another weakness in, in the sport. And uh, again, I think it just has to do with business expertise. And I, and I most certainly am not a business expertise person, but the, it, it's practical. Yeah. I mean, if you want, if you really want to build something, you need the community around you. Going back to your comments about Ron, Ron's been there for a heck of a long time, right? Mm -hmm. And you talk about a man that's patient and continued to work, you know, through, through all the years 
of, of just building his age group program and finally achieving phenomenal success. I think he's just done a phenomenal job, a yeah. phenomenal job. It's something to watch. Um, and as we sat down for almost, I don't know, two and a half, three hours, looking over his, you know, I got to see everything because we're building software. So I'm seeing his season plans. I'm seeing his career plans. I'm listening to things like, okay, Claire just came here. She was a 147, 200 freestyler yards. Um, she couldn't make our workout. She couldn't do 500s on six. And so we were going to move her to the second group. They're thinking about moving their entire family from the west, from the east coast to the west coast or west um, to to Las Vegas. And I'm telling them you're going to be in the second group. Um, and you know, I'm not. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just that. Um, but they gave her three weeks to try to get in shape, and um, and she did. And so now you're watching this. I watched her warm up in this environment where she's got three Olympians. This is just at a, at a senior meet in La, La Mirada. Um, and Mark and I are watching, everybody's watching it. But, but I got the, I had to stop. I wasn't even going to be there. My sister lives in La Mirada. I was going to take off from the meet after we worked on the software and I'm watching Claire warm up and I'm like, Oh my gosh, but I'm sure he did the same thing. But if you didn't fit into his training, you know, people are going to run you over and he's not going to change because you have a whole lot of tremendous talent. And I think there's, I don't know how you teach that, but that's an amazing thing because it inspired her to do really well, so well that she set the national record in the mile, you know, just, she only, she's only been there since August and I'm going to interview her first coach this week. So it's, it's kind of cool. Cause I get, cause there really, there's no animosity or whatever, but I want to see what they did right too, you know? But, but there's this thing called atmosphere and environment that <laughs> it's pretty hard for a consultant to come in and, and teach that right away. Unless, as you said, that consultant has done what Ron's done or maybe what you've done that where they've taken this kind of a normal environment without grabbing. I mean, obviously other swimmers are going to come in, but without grabbing everybody else's swimmers and making yourself look good, that the environment itself is so conducive to reaching excellence that people who otherwise wouldn't uh, reach reach the national level or people that are the national level, the Ledeckis right now that we're sort of not really picking on, but showing the difference between her, you know, last month's issue where I showed the difference between what she's doing in her stroke and the incredible and purposeful changes in her competition in Australia. Um, and I would say across the board, I mean, not, not just the one that beat her, but the across the board, that they're trying to beat us and their environments are so critical to them it's making us, it, it always, I think, and in many cases has made us look bad. How do you, how do you do it? You said the consultant thing didn't work. So what would work? First of all, you're dealing with personalities. Every coach has a different personality and, and every coach is going to get it done. Dick Jokums did it one way. I did it another way. Schubert did it another way, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I think those are the kind of people that need to be involved in, in some type of a mentoring program with coaches that are getting started. How many of our coaches, our new coaches, came out of college and went into a club coaching position with no mentoring whatsoever? Right. I mean, and 
welcome to hell, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and, and it's, it, it takes, it takes quite a while. And, and I'm, I speak from experience because I've made, I made a lot of mistakes as I came along and, and I really didn't have quote a men, a mentoring. Well, I did. I mean, I, I followed George Haynes. I, I would sit behind the bleachers and listen to him talk to his team and, and things like that. And was fortunate to start when Peter Dalen was, and I was in California um, and doc uh, mm-hmm. and listening to those people. Uh, but it, it doesn't, it still doesn't teach you the, the, the virtual mechanics of working with a group of parents who have different ideas than you do. And this is where I think someone who's been through the mill can come in and help young coaches. And I, are we going to be able to do that in clinics? I'm beginning to wonder whether clinics are going to work too well anymore. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe maybe this this particular product with Zoom will be good. Maybe that's what it's going to be in the future. I don't know. Hopefully, if we get through this latest variant without the politics of creating another variant, et cetera, we uh, maybe we can get back to some form of normalcy. Yeah. But there. I'm not too sure I have a direct answer to that question, but um, I, I I just think we've got to do a better job at it. And, you know, uh, I this is I'm kind of infamous or famous for coming to the Olympic Training Center with a distance group from Northern California. Well, actually, I was in Carson City, as you know, um, and but I took the distance the distance people, distance girls to Colorado Springs, and Bob Steele had me speak, and I came off a pool deck hot. You know, I was you know how you are, you're all pumped up on a pool deck. And I walk over to Johnny and all the other people at the Olympic Training Center, and I got them saying how much they had spent on the flume and the, you know, the pool and the, and the whole facility and everything. I kind of got them all going there. And then I said, okay, what's the average improvement of an American swimmer ranked in the world top 100? Um, what's the average improvement of, of that swimmer in somebody pick a stroke and somebody said 200 backstroke. I said, okay, what's the average improvement of an American swimmer uh, in ranked in the top 100. So there's only like, well, there were still, maybe there were 25 of them, you know, I mean, it's American swimming. So we had a lot of swimmers in the top 100 and then I stood and I stared for 60 seconds. It was probably the long, it probably seemed like an hour after they pumped them. You know, we have this, we have that, we do this. We have the resident national team. We have this and that they didn't know. And so I did because I got all the data from the international swimming statisticians, Nick Theory, and he had it on an, a, a Mac, um, luckily a Mac disc. And I gave it to my former swimmer, Dr. Jeff Pilling, and he crunched it and he could show the percentage improvements of all the countries head to head. We could actually tell China was cheating before we knew they, they were, unless we saw they were cheating because their, 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 their drops were incredible. So we watched percentage drops and percentage improvement and percentage on percentage drop off. So if you swam the 100 in a certain time, doubled it, subtracted it from the 200, how are you doing? And then they followed me to my computer because I, I had my computer with a big old honking stupid thing that I brought with me for this camp and looked over my shoulder as I showed them. And, I, and what my point about this is, 
if you're the best age group coach in America, when it comes to improvement of your swimmers and swimmers that go on to swim the rest of their lives, or at least in the, in the college and nationals, no one knows unless you happen to have Joe Hudapol, unless you happen to have, you know, Claire Weinstein, who's going to be one of those, um, you know, unless you have to have Michael Andrew. But the problem with this is, and back to your, your clinic thing is, if you're Mike, uh, Peter Andrew, you get to stand up there and say, this is how you should train anecdotally. And well, I even think you probably wouldn't say this is how you should train. You should say this is how you should get your feedback. And that's what Ron and I are working on right now. Not nationally, but wouldn't it be great if what Ron and I are working on said, hey, you can do this on your team. You just have to do on a percentage basis and have these expectations. And then you reverse engineer it and say, okay, you have to train the entire energy spectrum. You can't just go race pace every day. But that's my opinion. But I see you have an opinion. I have an opinion. Everybody has an opinion. But USA Swimming has the data and won't give it to us for us to crunch. And it drives me crazy. Well, I'll tell you two real quick stories with the United States Swimming. And this goes back to the close to the period of time where, where you had that group up there in, in, uh, <clears throat> in the Springs. First of all, I thought, I thought the flume helped it helped me it helped joe because we i I took him up there because i i felt there was a problem with his stroke underneath and i couldn't i couldn't really analyze it at that point in time so we went up to the springs we got in there and sure enough we found he was slipping through the water with his right hand underneath you know etc 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 and so the film really helped from that standpoint and i thought it could have helped a lot and then when i coached the national team distance distance group up in the Springs. I had set up through Denny and, and Jane um, some protocols in advance where we did a 3K time trial at sea level. Um, we came up, we had everything, everything was heart rate monitored all the way through. Um, we Jane got volunteers and brought them in and so forth and so on. And Everything was timed, everything was heart rate monitored uh, all the way through. We did a 3K time trial after six days, six days up and we did another 3K time trial, um, I think three days before we went down and we did another 3K at home when they got back after three days down, right? The improvement was phenomenal, et cetera, et cetera. And all stuff went into the garbage can all that stuff went right into the garbage can so it you you can have a lot of data but if you don't if you don't use the data um it it doesn't doesn't make much and uh while danny was the national team coach um i did an analysis and this was through Nick, again, Nick, Nick Theory was probably the smartest man in our sport. Yeah. Um, tremendous. And, and Nick had junior world rankings at the time. And so what I did was I took all our junior national rankings and then compared them to our rankings at the senior level after people went into college. Boy, did we drop off. Uh. Boy, did we drop off. And I mean, drop off big time. Now, I'm not a statistician, 
So I asked United States Swimming to give it to one of their statisticians and really put it together in a format where it could be shown. And I'm sure that there was either indirect or direct pressure from somebody because it went into the waste paper basket also. <laughs> and, and I mean, we had a phenomenal drop off. I don't remember the exact percentage, but it was, it was mind boggling. Talking about training, I'm still of the opinion and will always be that we just do not do enough aerobic work in training. And especially early on in the season. And Bill Sweetnam and I had several discussions on this and we both agreed with one thing. The international schedule disrupted training. Whereas you will recall from, from late August, early September, all the way through until January, the beginning of January, we were, it was aerobic training and, and we built our mileage up, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and uh, we don't do that anymore. Everybody's in a hurry to go fast. And, and I think you can still go fast and still do, especially early on 98, 90, 95 to 98% of your training as in an aerobic capacity. Um, if you, if you add a lactate training into that, it doesn't require a lot, but, but things like four 15 meter blasts, right? Good distance, et cetera, timed, um, those kind of things maintain speed they, and, the, and they help to increase speed. You can do those in and outs. You can do those 15 meters out, um, 15 meters or 20 meters from a dive, um, all of that stuff, as long as it's tested and tied and you're improving. And the same goes to the aerobic. There was an article in, uh, on a Facebook post about test sets. Well, test sets are great, but what are you testing? Yeah. Right? And you need to test aerobically Whatever that test is, it could be a straight 2000, it could be 20, 10, 300s, it could be whatever, whatever the coach wants it to be, but it needs to be tested both heart rate and speed. Mm. And that needs to keep getting better. Throughout the season, it needs to keep getting better. And the better you get at that, the better you're going to test at, at, at an anaerobic test or VO2 max, et cetera. And, and I don't think we do that. Richard Thornton and I have had a lot of communication on that. And he, he just emailed me the other day and said they had a very, very good meet, a very good meet. Um, and all he's doing is 98% aerobic right now. And the rest of it is basically a, a lactate work. And he said something about the 80-20 rule or something like that. He's going below threshold um, as often as he can, but he, I think he's being somewhat specific about it. And when you watch Ron, 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 I don't, not to counter, but it was interesting because I got a thing from somebody that said, I, you know, I'm, I'm interviewing Ron. And I'm also working with Ron Aiken and, and they said, Oh, we heard he's a gar you know, he didn't say garbage yardage, but other people have, we heard he's an ultra distance kind of a coach. 
you know, it's funny is we just had a recruit come into CBU who's in his third group. He did, I'm, I'm not even sure he knows her very well. She hasn't been there a long time. She came over from Boulder City, which they had done a good job with her there too. But she, I asked her point blank, what's your average stroke count? 15, boom, just like that, just like that. He said, we never go, a fi we never go 50 meters without counting strokes or knowing the stroke count. She said, there'll be coaches on the end asking us our stroke count who already know it and want to make sure that we know it. So they never go, they never, they'll, they'll do a lot of mileage. He said, if we go up to 100K in a week, not everybody. He goes, we could, we could never get our, our breaststroker up to, um, I know Cody Miller, we could never get him over 60. Once we got him to 65, he is not so great. So they're paying attention all the time, but they're not afraid of doing what you just said is lots of aerobic work or what Richard Thornton, you know, and, and, and his dad, he got a lot from his dad. Um, I think it's great what you're saying. Here's the thing, though. We're so we're like the East Germans used to say, and it was unfortunate they said it first, but you put a bunch of eggs in a basket, you throw them at the wall, and whichever one doesn't break, those are your swimmers. But that's, that's from the USA swimming level. That's from the ASCA level. Ask ASCA who truly is the most effective. I'm not talking about the most achieved with 5,000 swimmers, like an Irvine. Nothing wrong with Irvine. But when, you, when you've got thousands of swimmers, somebody's going to make you look good. But how is their average swimmer doing? How is their rank and file swimmer doing? How is their swimmer doing that goes you know, 12 seconds for the 25 free compared to their hundred at 10 years old, at 12 years old or in college, whatever. And your point's another great point. I talked to, um, not Richard Quick, who was the guy's coach at Stanford when Richard Quick was here? Um, Skip. Uh, Skip. Skip. So I'm, <laughs> we had just done our first software and I said, Skip, I'm going to do another thing. I'm going to rank the percentage improvement from the time you're a freshman to the time you're a senior in college. He goes, I go, what do you think? I go, that's kind of, there's a lot of variables there, right? He goes, yeah, but bring it on, man. I can't wait to see how, how we do compared to everyone else. And I, I we asked oh, one more thing. We're in the restroom. I go, one more thing is, and he said, and if we're not the best, we're going to try to become the best. And that's exactly what all of us will do given the right feedback on all this stuff. And I think that's where we're really missing out. Yeah, you have it with, a, you know, with George Haynes or Mark said the same thing about George going up and watching him every every month and then staying with him for two weeks. He goes, but that's a one on one shot for the really motivated coach like a Bob Bowman did that and other people that got really good. But what about for the rank and file coach that could be producing really amazing swimmers and goes on to do something else because they they can't handle a board and they're the best of the best from a lot of hard work that never gets recognized. A, a lot of coaches go into club coaching and they're reasonably successful and, and they're there for three or four years and boom, are off to a college, a college job. Right. And that's, that's not helping us. So. Or with even within the same program, right? They're this amazing age group coach, but they can't make a living at it because they're not being paid or reinforced. I mean, both are important, right? Being paid is fine, but having somebody from USA swimming go, while you have the highest percentage improvement in the, in 200 in, in 100 backstroke in the in the country and your kids keep swimming you can't have the highest percentage improvement if they're quitting some people are like you're pushing your 10 year olds well yeah but they love it you know and and maybe you're not pushing them they're pushing themselves because you got this group um and you're doing that year after year after year after year who knows who those coaches are they've tried a little if you have you know the if you have a number of swimmers 
at a, at a certain level, but I don't think they go on the basis of whether or not you're getting, you know, tons of swimmers from other teams, which is highly reinforced within USA Swimming, which I think breaks teams. When somebody moves from a team and they they were going to build this great organization based upon, and, and Claire Weinstein may be one of them, you know, that, that she's just doing this great job. I think it's called Westchester. I don't know a lot about her former team, but in August, she moves across the country and goes to Ron's team. If that broke that team, there's two reasons it could have happened. One is, of course, she was very high profile. By the time she had done, I think she was the youngest swimmer at Olympic trials. But what about the next 10? And what about the 10 that don't have somebody that has that profile? What's going to keep that coach coaching? Or especially at an age group level, what's going to keep that coach coaching age group when she could make twice as much money as the head coach, but maybe she's not that great at organization. Maybe she's not that great at, at what to do with a senior swimmer. I just think we do that again and again and again, all the way across the country, every year, every generation. And it, it ha I think it has to be improved. And it, it absolutely needs to be improved, but how do you improve it? And, and one of the reasons, let's use DeAnza as an example. Um, Pete's paying, he's paying those coaches, his, his staff very, very well. Mm. But that isn't happening throughout throughout swimming most of the most of the age group coaches are making 15 to 20,000 bucks a year if lucky right and and i i think that needs to be reformatted in in swimming also where we're finding ways to pay and and as long as the club coaches club club coaching is set up the way it is right now with boards of directors i don't think you'll ever see it happen right who's going to vote to pay more Nobody. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. When you have an age group coach who's doing a hell of a job and developing technically and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, pay him. Yeah. Keep him. Yeah. Right. And maybe and, keep him as an age group coach. You know, again, my point of them going on to senior coaching when they shouldn't have never done that. You know, some people are meant to be age group coaches. I'm I one. Remember. Brian, I remember Brian Paher as the age group coach for Irvine. He was phenomenal. Yeah. And Irvine at that time had probably in the top 10 in all the age groups and all the events probably had at least three to four people in the top 10. Right. Right. And, and, and I thought, I thought, man, there's a guy that, you, you know, you want to keep him as an age group coach. And Brian went on, became a university coach and a senior coach and so forth and so on. But uh, uh, there, there are other examples of people like that, too. Bill Sweetnam put out a program which some people followed, some people didn't. Basically, how do you train from 10 years old to 11 years old to 12 years old and 13 and 14 and so forth and so on? How do you progress from an age group swimmer up through a senior swimmer? And that needs to come back again. We yeah. need to, we, we need technical expertise with age groupers, having them swim properly. You need tremendous communication from top down and bottom up in, in a staff right? So that everyone's speaking the same language. You can't have the same personality, but you most certainly can have the same the technical language that goes into your program. Right. And that's head coach's responsibility. 
Yeah, I agree. I, I, yeah. The head coach I, is the key of that. Yep. And, I, and again, I, I just don't see that happening. And um, I, there, there's too much emphasis on, on speed at a very young level versus overemphasis on the technical aspect of it and let age and growth and strength, et cetera, take over as the child continues to improve, right? Right. That's an ideal situation, <laughs> but uh, I think it's an important one. I don't, I don't think it's that, that hard to do. I think, I think part of it is maybe you have to pull away from all these huge uh, USA Swimming invitationals. And as I say with many things in life, follow the money. It's awfully hard to make money at that. I think part of it is teaching your people, look, we're going to have a dual meet. It's going to cost you what it would cost you to have a, a go into an invitational. You're going to be done in two hours, um, like it would be in soccer. We're going to go head to head with soccer. It's going to be more fun than soccer. We might even have an underwater video and stop in the middle of the meet and show everybody what they look like underwater. And the coaches even get together and go, hey, this is this is something we're teaching. Uh, looks like you crossed over a little bit. And when you got tired, you dropped your elbow. You might want to work on this on dry land. I mean, I could do that. Not everybody maybe has the expertise to do it. But I think if you taught it, if you tried to teach it, it everyone could do it. And, you know, we live and you know, we're doing this right now on Zoom. We live in a world where everyone could see a dual meet run that way. Um, and somebody say, wow, that would be great. But but yeah, these long, long invitationals and and part of the point of that is when you're an age grouper, you you your aerobic system builds first. And yet it's flipped when it comes to USA swimming, because you can get a lot of people swimming 50s and hundreds, lots of people swimming 25s, 50s and hundreds in a short period of time. And each one of them pays for each of those events. Whereas it's really hard to get your uh, 11, 12s, a whole, a whole bunch of people to sit around while 11, 12s from 400 IMs or, or 500s or thousands. And yet I, my experience and it's long-term experience is nine, 10 year olds can be taught to do that, like to do it. Um, it's fun to watch if you know what you're watching. And yet who's going to, you know, with a, with a, with a uh, invitational, nobody wants to sit around for that. I don't even necessarily want to sit around for that. So yeah, I think it can be the whole structure kind of needs to be flipped upside down a little bit. What do you think about that? I, I'm in complete agreement, but uh, I mean, you're there in Southern California and Southern <laughs> California doesn't most certainly doesn't want any dual mates. <laughs> and he and Irvine would, would get together and have a, a small dual meet, but it wasn't encouraged at all in any way, shape or form because the money's not there. That's right. And, and that's just a shame. It shouldn't cost anything. <laughs> you most certainly can get a volunteer official to do it and get several people to do some timing and sanction the damn thing and, and let people have some fun with it. And you're right. It's, it's an hour and a half to two hours, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And it's done. And the parents yeah. are happy because they got a chance to watch their children swim and and it's just, it's sad. I mean, and, and it doesn't help. It doesn't help to build the sport. No. Right. No. And the only reason I brought I mean, up the money why, is charging why, the money is it's a fundraiser, right? That the invitations are fundraisers. So if you're going to do a fundraiser, why not keep it right within your own team instead of giving it all to all these other entities? But yeah, you're right. It should be, it could be free. 
Nancy Hogshead and Donna De Verona and Donna Lopiano have an organization that is uh, that is working to try to resolve this. I personally think they're going a little bit more toward the middle of the road and maybe the woke road. Um, and, and it and it really bothers me that that people can't be simplistic about it. A biological male will always be a biological male. Yes. And he's always going stronger than a pure, meaning no drugs, biological woman. Right. And therefore, it is unfair to have someone in that capacity swimming against a woman. And it, it, is, it is just... And it has the potential to ruin women's sports. All the work that Donna did years ago toward Title IX could go down the drain. And that would just be the saddest thing that we could possibly imagine. Um, the NC2A and the United States Swimming have taken no leadership in it whatsoever. I mean, they're just, they're trying to play the middle oh, with suppression testosterone suppression, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't want to get into the weeds on the medical scientific stuff of it because it doesn't make a darn bit of difference. It, it just, it has to be banned. And the other middle of the road is create a, create a separate, a separate um, category, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Where's the money coming from? Mm. The money's got to be taken from someplace that's going to be taken from women's swimming and from men's swimming. Okay. Or any other sport it's going to be, and there's not enough money to go around as it is. So, I mean, I, I, <laughs> the controversial part of it from my point of view is probably you want to make changes to your body and your life. There are consequences. So yeah. there, there it is. And, and I, I just, I'm, I'm, ASCA finally came out and made a statement. I didn't think it was a very strong statement. Um, ISCA hasn't done anything. Um, the United States Swimming is sitting on their hands, um, et cetera. And, that, and they're all aware of it. The NC2A is going back to United States Swimming and the United States Swimming is doing nothing. Bad leadership, bad board leadership, bad CEO leadership, et cetera. There, there we have it. <laughs> well, I'm glad. I'm, you know, I'm glad to hear you um, say what a lot of people are thinking. I don't think um, I don't even think many reasonable transgenders uh, athletes uh, think it's completely fair. I I don't think it, they they believe it's completely fair that. They were born the way they were born and, and, and have and want to be what they are. I, 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 I'm sure there's that side of the equation, but but your reason you're being reasonable. My, my thought was, yeah, if you're going to go the middle of the road, you, if you're going to go the middle somewhere, have a category. But as you bring it up, it's it, there's going to be money and that money is going to be potential potentially. Now, maybe somebody will come along and just fund the whole thing, you know, and that that's great, too. But potentially it could have. I don't think it's anybody's um, any transgender athlete or coach or whatever. I don't think anybody wants there to be a negative impact. I think in a, in a sense, they're trying to make sure that 
they they get to have their their day in the sun too but it's a different sun it's a different it's a different category it's a different sport and i medically speaking i i i just can't imagine that you're wrong i think i think you're right on the nose once you've been a certain size i mean we even see this when it comes to the steroids once you've stopped the steroids there's still long term positive if you call them positive effects and negative effects but uh, long-term effects that you're stronger forever. You're not as strong as you were, but you're stronger forever. And that's in the people cheating. What in the people that lived for 18 years, or in this case, I think 20 years, I know what you're thinking about, because it really took now for somebody to be that good as a male to be dominant as a female. I used to say, well, what if Ryan Lochte did it just as, as a joke? Um, but yeah, I think, um, it's going to change everything and I, it's going to be interesting to see, I guess it's going to all come to play really soon, huh? With the NCAA championships. What do you think is going to happen there? I don't know. And I, I most certainly wouldn't waste my money to go and see it. That's for sure. But, mm. uh, I, I just, I, I, I just think it's a very unfair situation and, and I would hope that, United States swimming gets off its butt and really takes a strong stand against this. Um, and I, and, and that from there, I hope the NC2A takes the initiative to make some, some, some changes. And uh, what those changes are, I don't know. And, and I, some ways, I, I guess I don't care as a retired coach, um, right. but, I, I like to look into the future on things. And again, this has the potential to literally ruin women's sports. And I'm not talking swimming. I'm talking women's sports. Right. Because if you, if you, if you encourage it, and I, I hate to say it that way, but if you encourage it and, and which is what seemingly is happening right now, um, are, are more people going to be, make that kind of a change in their life it has it has a humanitarian effect also um and i mean if i'm a parent and i have two young girls and they're going to go into a sport where they're going to lose all the time <laughs> i think i'm going to go to violin or, or, or piano or, or acting or whatever yeah. Uh, it, yeah. It's just, it, it is not a good situation. It, it's, it's minuscule right now, but it has the potential to just blow up. And that, that is, that's scary. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, um, you know, and there will be people that say, well, it was scary to let black people into baseball. Uh, and I think that that's, that's what they're equating it into. They're saying it's a civil right. Um, but I think there's a, there's a point where it's, it's, it's a very, a very different thing. And it's, and it's, uh, it's, it's manipulated in terms of, you know, you weren't a female now you are. Uh, so I just think there's a lot, a lot to it. I, I'm, I'm trying not to take a stance in the sense that, I mean, I'm not saying you're wrong, and, and I, I lean toward your area and I'm trying to put myself in the place of a transgender person that's already had the, the um, already ha had the change and all that stuff. I just, 
I can't imagine me thinking it's fair that I compete against people that weren't born um, that weren't born female. Um, it just it's just an un unfortunate thing. But on the other hand, I'd like to compete. So that's why I thought before you said the thing about the money is I, I think I always think in terms of Christians doing a lousy job with the with the marriage thing. I think they, I think a, a truly thoughtful person, Christian or not, should have said, you know, it is unfair that I get a job and I'm single. You get a job and you're married and they're going to pay you more for your health insurance and taking care of a whole bunch of people. And I have a friend just just call it a friend a friend that needs medical care and i don't get to use i don't get equal pay for equal work in other words i think that if christians would have said we get it on a legal basis it should be equal and just left it out of the rest instead of the sin and this and that i think they'd have been a lot better off now in this case it's not christians i don't think but making this argument on the other side but i think somebody has to say okay these people matter too let's do what we can uh, without without um, taking money from what would be women's sports and men's sports, let's do the very best job we can to raise enough money to have a third. Wouldn't that be cool? I mean, wouldn't it be great if we tried to help without compromising uh, the definition of a female and a male in terms of physical ability? I think people need to be kind and I think they need to be thoughtful and I think they are, but they're going so far to the extent, kind of to your point, they're going so far to the extent of being kind and being and being accommodating that they're not being reasonable. Testing the aerobic system is, and I'm, I'm going to use it as, a, I'll, I'll give you an example. First test, and again, the test can be anything, right? As long as it's heart rate monitor and and along with distance per stroke, et cetera, et cetera, that that kind of stuff is very important. Also, um, person averages, we'll say, long course meters, sixty eights per hundred. Okay. Right. Three weeks later, you test it again. Hopefully, the same heart rate, sixty six plus sixty sevens, and you continue that. And if, the, if that continues all the way through the season, I can guarantee you, you're going to be swimming a lot faster. Right. Right. And, and it, it's, I, I just don't see that happening uh, right now. And I, again, I'm, I live in a foreign country and I've been out of the country since 2000. Um, but I learned a lot in China. <laughs> I learned a lot in China, um, primarily because I had I had very similar to a top level SEC program. I had all I had everything surrounding me. Um, the other the other side of this that 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 I learned a lot about when I was in China um, is. Practical science, and I know I was at the ISCA meeting clinic a couple of years ago, and and I sat in on their board meeting. And one of the comments that I made, because a lot of the board members were from the science community, and I said, "Science is fantastic as long as it's practical." Hmm. If it's not practical, 
<laughs> to, to my mind, it's just theoretical. It's out there in space someplace. Individual recovery rates. Where are we in testing on that, right? I mean, right. What, what science do we have? Um, we don't. How do we recover between heats and finals? Um, lots, of, lots of theory out there about altitude training, right? Right. But not really scientific um, about it. And how long should we be up there? Right now, everybody says 21, 22 days, right? Could it be longer? Why, why aren't we watching the cyclists? Most of the cyclists are training at altitude. And they're training, they're living up there, right? Right. And they're tra- Six seven thousand feet, and they're and they're training hard. Um, one of the things I wanted to do at Carson City was was to do some. It wasn't scientific, but by the same token, I wanted to go up to, I think it's Leadwood, which is about eleven thousand eleven thousand feet, and there was a pool up there, and train up there for a week, right? Come down to eight thousand train there for a week, go down to 5,000 or somewhere in that vicinity, train there for another week, and then drop down to sea level and do some testing. And obviously that required funding and (laughs) United States swimming didn't give me the funding, so we didn't do it. Um, But I thought it would be very interesting. Lauren Lauren Costello, when we were, we were doing a, a, an altitude training camp living at 10,000 or maybe higher. I don't know. It, we lived in, uh, in Snowbird and then we came down and trained at Cottonwood and uh, there was a pool at Snowbird. So after I think we were there for at that point, maybe 15 days, and I said, let's run the same test that we did, which was just 10 100s on 130. And that we did it at 5,000 at Cottonwood. Let's try it in the pool up at Snowbird. (laughs) And she was averaging, I think, in Cottonwood 57s or 57 low somewhere in that vicinity. And and we, (laughs) she averaged 108s (laughs) at Snowbird. Yeah. A significant difference in altitude. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, it wasn't scientific, but you, you most certainly learned something from it. <laughs> yeah. Well, the stress levels, you know, I lived up there too. And so the stress levels are, uh, are significant. The tapers almost always work. I had one taper blown and that's, that was the year I spent um, 10 workouts in Maui. And we went, I think, too far now that I look back at it. But we just had a horrible juniors um, right after that. And, the, the, you know, we had we had come close to winning juniors the year, the season before. And, and uh, I don't know what I learned. I, there's a bunch of things. One, I went too far Two, We didn't have enough fun in Maui. Uh, three. I mean, there's just many things, uh, things that you taught me about not preparing as much for racing and, and just seeing what we could do for training. Um, that was kind of my option. When I first moved to Carson city, no one had any talent uh, and true, you know, 
speed talent. I'm looking at Claire and just looking at her speed and then the fact that she can swim the mile. If you got enough speed and you want to train, there's nothing you can't do. I, I'm sure that men should be under four minutes right now in a 500 free, for example. Somebody should be able to go, you know, 548s without a whole lot of trouble. And, and but we just have people that think they're sprinters once they can go a, a 42 or 43. And, and, you know, if you think about it in running or anything else, if you go 42, 43 and somebody goes a 39, you probably ought to think about going farther, you know, um, but, but that's, that's another story in a sense, but I didn't have that. So what I could do when I got there was we could train to beat people. We could train to beat people who were unwilling to train. And so we were good at 200 fly, good at 400. I am good at mile, good at thousand. And it's, you know, whatever, and all the meters. And, um, but yet I think I took them too far. But as you said, how would I know? I mean, what kind of feedback am I getting from people that know more than me, unless I go out there and beg for it, which I've always done, but, and I know you have too, but it's, it's rare for us to get that. And that's back to the, the sort of frustration that these young coaches are coming up and they don't have anybody to lean on. Uh, you know, I have sweetened them. I did the thing we did with sweetened them, except I put it in software. So I've got that whole thing, that whole season plan. And sure enough, when I look over Ron Aiken's shoulder the other day, I see that same thing. And I see Tudor Bompa's work built into what he's already planning. And, you know, he's like, he thought he was coming to me, just going to show me because I could make, you know, the code work. But I'm looking at it and going, oh, yeah, I did it so long that I could go, I think here would be better if you did this. If you thought about tracking ankle flexibility, he was like, wow, I really hadn't, you know, and, and it wasn't like it was like an epiphany, but both of us are having this discussion that we should be having all along. I've told people before, outside of character, the number thing, one thing in college that I would recruit, ankle flexibility, because you know they're going to be able to go that 15 meters underwater if they've got really good ankles and they're not going to in short course. It's a killer if you don't have great ankles. So I'd go for character and great ankles and then everything else hopefully falls into place. <laughs> like Claire's six feet tall. That doesn't hurt. <laughs> she's technically, I've, I've only seen a video of her swim, but um, she's technically pretty solid. Oh, so beyond, her, beyond her, solid. Her, oh my God. Whoever coached her as a youngster did, did a fantastic job. So um, talking about, you know, distance, we're we're getting we're, we seem to be getting a little bit better, but by the same token, we're not anywhere near good enough in in swimming in in the fifteen. Let's let's take the fifteen hundred. If you eliminate Katie and Leah, we're still struggling. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, and if you eliminate the, the the two top guys in the country, we're really struggling. And we need at least 10 guys under 1450, at least 10. When that happens, you're going to start seeing more and more people under 15 minutes. And when that happens, you're going to start seeing closer to 1440. You know, get 10 guys under 1440. Nobody's going to be go crazy. Yeah. Nobody's going to beat us at that point. But we just don't, again, that's why I come back to the aerobic training and the importance of it. And uh, if, if you continue to train speed, you're most certainly not going to have great distance swimming. Ron was showing me his progression from 30 100s on 101. These are girls. 
3,100 short course, I guess. So yeah, short course. 3,100 is on 101. And then various of them are averaging 55s, that kind of thing. Then he shifts it to 60 over the course of, of um, cycles. And some will go to 80. Once in a while, someone will go to 100, you know. Um, they'll go to, and then, but it's all planned. And he's watching it and he's very carefully monitoring it. And again, you can walk over anytime and go, how many strokes did you take? They're not losing strokes. I've always, it's always sort of bothered me that it's okay for us to spin out at the end of races. We teach people to get less water and spin out at the end of races and start just having this thing. I, you know, I guess I go back to where I learned it was from a runner, Ed Moses, the runner, Ed Moses. I think the swimmer, Ed Moses, was also extremely intelligent in how he tried to get every drop of water and try to make things better all the time. So those two Ed Moseses were truly Moses. <laughs> um, I think Ed Moses, I think, dominated um, hurdles for, I think, 16 years. But he was the only one counting every single stride between hurdles. And they were always the same. And consistency taught us something that we just haven't picked up on. Absolutely. I'll tell you a, just a real quick story in China because it, it was it was an important one. Um, Xu, who who was our top breaststroker in the program at that point in time, when I came in there, was two thirty three eight, I think, um, two hundred meter breaststroke, and we started on a program of distance per stroke. We did a lot of underwater work, three two four two drill. Um, that kind of stuff. Um, but everything was stroke oriented, right? In terms of how many strokes, how many strokes, how many strokes, what, what speed are we at, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And eight months later, she went 221. Mm. That's the importance of, of a combination of, of all aspects of training, but most important is stroke count. Hmm. And I remember it was Andy swam for uh, swam for George at UCLA. Um, I've forgotten his name now. Last name Andy Andy someone he he, he was he, he was holding. He went four, I think it was four strokes, four strokes, six 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 strokes 10 strokes at the end on the last 25. Yeah. The race. And he was, he was a body length in front before that, right? And that's just discipline and practice. Yeah. That's how, that's how important it is to be able to maintain stroke control. If you think back to the great breaststrokers from, from Germany, I'm going way back into the 1940s and 50s and so forth, they were all stroke counting and they were all pretty equal. In, in breaststroke, I like to talk about building power, not necessarily building speed, right? Power and speed come together, but by the same token, mentally, if you're building power throughout your race, you're going to still maintain a stroke count, right? Coming home on that last 50, you're just going to be that much more powerful. 
And, and what I see a lot of today, and, I, and especially in, when I'm watching on, on television or whatever, I'm counting strokes. And I'm watching people, I'm watching people go 18, 22, 22, 25, 26. Yep. Right. And it's fine. Coaches don't even say anything about it. But then, but then when you look at their splits, they're not any faster. Yeah. Well, that's that you're, you're, I mean, they're not they're not controlling. There is something to not grabbing every bit of water on every stroke. It's just like in, in, in kayaking and, and that kind of thing, where you don't take the blade and get every drop of water on every pull because you can't keep the cadence. There's this, there's this perfect stroke count, but I think it comes down to what we were talking about before, individualizing that goal, individualizing that training. But once you find it, you know, you found it. And so why would you change? You could change tempo, but don't change rhythm. And don't change how much water you're pulling, how much water you have in your arms and legs, um, because you're trying to go faster. If anything, you want more, you know, and, and if anything, maybe you take a little bit less at the beginning, uh, water I'm talking about per stroke. So maybe a little more strokes. I mean, I'm just thinking reasonably and then finish with every bit of, of a pressure that you can get without losing the water. I think that's a, that's reasonable. Maybe it isn't though. <laughs> I don't know for sure. Do you know for sure? You, I mean, when I watched Greg Troy's kind of underranked, underrated breaststroker set the American record in 50.00 at the, uh, uh, was that SECs or something? And he, and he um, you know, <laughs> Caleb Dressel, I watched his, I still have a video of that, and he took five strokes per lap. And so he took five strokes per lap. Everything was prepared though, right? He had planned to do dominate that first dolphin kick. He had planned to dominate that first butterfly pull. He had planned to sneak up and then really be pretty good on that first kick, even though he doesn't have a great kick. He didn't plan to pull his groin, which he did on that, on that event. Um, and so Greg said that he was tracking to go 48, but he was tracking to go 48. I think most young coaches, USA Swimming, Aska, Wiska, Iska, all ought to listen to that. He was planning to go this many strokes. He was planning to be a certain place in time after the first dolphin kick. It was all planned. And shouldn't we all set that up as a goal for all of at least American swimming? And aren't they doing that in Australia? Because what for everything I get about Australia right now is we're in trouble because they seem to be speaking one language across the whole coaching community, even if they're different from each other, but they're all looking for the same thing and reinforcing the same thing from what I understand. Is that your opinion? Yeah. And I, I think one of the, the, the real positive things about the Australian program from everything that I know about it is they put a lot of responsibility on the athlete and we put a lot of responsibility on the coach. Very, very well said. That is, that is absolutely imperative. Um, and you know, there's there's a lot of we we do we do almost all our interval training 130, 115, 110, 105, one minute, 55, whatever, whatever the interval happens to be, right? Right. Because such large groups and so forth and so on. And from my understanding, 
conversations with Michael Bull and, and other coaches. Um, there's his five second rest, 10 second rest, 20 second rest, et cetera, et cetera, because they're all individual and they're all swimming at different speeds. And that makes a lot of sense. 75% of the work that I did in China was that way because I had an eight lane pool with 20 athletes. So it was, it was with two assistant coaches. So I could, I could really focus in on what they were doing and they could focus in on what they were doing. Right. Of times in terms of heart rate, et cetera, et cetera. Well, we had, you know, laminated percentage charts on the deck in Carson City when we were doing really well. And that was something we'd say, OK, I want everybody at 80 percent. So 80 percent when you went 10 seconds faster than the next person was different. But we wanted the same percentage. So that I think that that helped to do that, too. I know we didn't do a good enough job with heart rate because we at that time, the state of the art for heart rate monitors was really, really low. I'm not sure how good they are now. I know everybody has them on their Apple watch. I don't know how perfect they are. I ask, I ask coaches and I ask my athletes once in a while who have them, how's it, how's it doing? But I haven't spent a lot of time researching it, but we certainly can do a lot better job of heart rate rate training than we ever did before. And, and I think that tying those two things in percentage of your best time, I go this far, Jack. And, and I know I, you know, it's funny. I got kicked off of one of the forums that I can't go on anymore. Cause I talk about me inventing things, but I'm like, we made this thing. That's just a tripod but you put your camera on. But my point on that was you videotape you. Once you've been swimming for a year, if I've done my job, you know what you're looking for. You don't have to have me all the time. Most coaches will say, I don't video because whenever I stop and show it, there's 18 other people waiting for me to get to them, you know, and, and I, they have a, a right for that. And in fact, I try to convince coaches don't buy my, my cart and don't buy all this fancy stuff because the, the swimmer can really make the biggest change. And then once they're motivated to do that, then you send them home to do some land work. We talked about ankles, you know, and talking to the, the people at Stanford a long time ago, um, Marty Hall, he goes, you can't improve ankle flexibility by doing 15 seconds worth of, you know, rotate rotations. You got to hold them in position, just like you're, you're standing at 90 degrees all your life and you're sleeping at 90 degrees walking at 90 degrees and all of a sudden you're supposed to go at 180 degrees to be able to or more to deflect water he said everyone at stanford had at least i'm i'm converting this they because biomechanically they use a different kind of measure so they say over 90 degrees but it's over 180 degrees he said everyone flopped onto the ground at stanford but one and that was a breaststroker and he was there for a decade or more you know so you have to be holding in that position. Well, you got to send them home to do that because who has that kind of time to have them out for 15, 20, 30 minutes stretching their ankles on the deck? So anyway, that's my, I agree with you, but I, I would take it to the next level. Land needs to be different for every individual. Maybe there'll be some that are similar, of course, but you know, if you need, if you need to work on your, on your um, shoulder rotators and the reverse shoulder rotators more than the next person, you shouldn't be bogged into what they're doing. It should be individual. And the only way that's going to happen is you put more of the responsibility, as you just said, beautifully said, on the athlete. Do you think that's you're going that far in, in, in Australia? Or do you think there's a lot more um, dictatorship, as all coaches tend to do? Uh, no, I, I, at least from the things that I've, I've heard, I, I think there's a lot of responsibility placed on the athletes. I mean, the coaches are there. 
and the coaches are motivating and working in the technical aspects of the sport and so forth and so on. But in terms of logbooks, how many coaches in the United States have their athletes keep a logbook? And how many of them read it once a week, right? Etc. And, and comment on, you know, on what it is and, and teach them how to, how many people are teaching visualization. And we can go on and on and on and on things that just absolutely are imperative for an athlete to rise to the top level. And I, I mean, I've heard coaches say, well, yeah, I think it's great that they keep a logbook. <laughs> but no feedback. That, that needs to be a team function. Right? Yeah. yeah. And you need to be part of the coach. You need to be able to sit down and read that every week. On, on Saturday, after Saturday morning's practice, everybody would turn it in. And on Monday morning practice, I'd give them back. And I'd comment on every single logbook, right? You're doing this. You're doing this fantastic. You're doing this. We need a little bit more work on, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. There's, there's a, a visual form of communication going on. Part of being a professional, I think. Yeah. I, I, I think it is, but... Um, how many people are doing it? Well, I mean, and here's back to our point about the reinforcement that we're getting from on high, whatever that be, is if you find these teams, you know, I mean, it's easy with Rons right now. With Sandpipers, you just go, okay, well, let's listen to what they're doing. But if you find these teams that are outliers, that are doing that, that the average, again, back to the average swimmer that comes in with a given, you know, a parameter, you know, and they're improving much better. And, and as they go off to college, if somebody's doing the data, that using the data USA swimming hogs um, and they keep getting better from certain teams versus other teams. Maybe we need to go back and go, okay, yeah, those are the ones. And you and I are going to guess those are the ones that are doing logbook. Those are the ones that are counting strokes. Those are the ones that are doing heart rate. Those are the ones that are going over the distance below threshold or at threshold. Um, and, and they're really attenuating to stroke all the time, measurably attenuating the stroke. Like they can look at, um, or and, tra and track it back to tracking too. If I walk into a new team when I mentor them, I'll ask a coach. I've done this a million times. Where I walk in, not as many as Bob Steele, but I walk in and I'll go, um, okay. So tell me some. Tell me. Tell me one of your summers you're proud of. That's so and so. He's a butterflyer. You know, you could go to Ron and right now and go, okay. I've got a 15 year old butterflyer that goes 45 in the 100 fly, which is pretty stinking good. Goes 142 in the 200, and we both agreed, oh well, he should be a lot faster than that. And bo both Ron and I are just like, this is just a discussion that we're having. If you double 45, uh, he shouldn't be going 142. He should be a lot faster than that. Maybe 137. So, but that's what we can do, just like that, because we do it every day, you know. And but you, but I'll go in there and I'll say, okay, that's a flyer. What's his best 100 dolphin kick time? What's his best 25 dolphin kick time to college coaches? I don't know. I don't know. I'm like, I don't know means I don't care. If I don't care, you think the athlete's going to care? And if the athlete doesn't care, you think they're going to improve? And so that's, you have to, you're right. You have to, you have to pay the price yourself. Once you do though, it's now on the athlete. Well, that's part of the progression of age group swimming, teaching athletes, right? If, you, if you've got 10 year olds that are keeping logbooks. Guess what? They're going to be keeping a logbook when they're 20. Yeah. Oh, and right. on in their life, they're going to track things that aren't working and figure out why and figure them out. 
I think, I think we're teaching life skills or we're not. We're just throwing ourselves at the wall and hoping we don't break. So, so the people on the USRPT side have a point. If we're going yardage that we're not measuring, if we're not counting strokes, if we're not doing heart rates, and we're just trying to go as far as we can because that's what our coach did, um, or that's what we heard Greg Troy did, or Jack Simon did, or Steve Freer, whatever, then yeah, we're, we're probably going garbage yardage. And, but, but then on the other side, have you seen Michael Andrews first stroke out of his breakout? And you gotta just shake your head and go, why would you pull with the top hand sideways? Why in the world, if you're, if you're gonna brag to us, and by the way, they deserve this because they come after, after people that go the whole spectrum. They are the ones who call it garbage yardage. So I'm like, okay, if you're gonna do that and you're gonna go all out on every stroke, which is what they said they did, whether it's Brent or whether it's Peter or whether it's Michael, then you better have a really good first stroke or you better have a really good pace. You better know how to finish. I mean, all those things have to be in. If you're doing it every day, it, if it isn't working, you gotta be willing to change it. And that's, I guess what I would say to them. And I would say to you, and you should say to me, if we aren't getting what we're, what we're, what, what we're supposed to be getting out of our athletes in terms of time improvement and that kind of thing. If you've got a guy that goes 45, that goes 142, hey, maybe he's a drop dead sprinter and you can measure that. But, but Ron doesn't think he has a drop dead sprinter. <laughs> he, thinks, he thinks the guy's still 15, 16 and he's still building the way the rest of the team is building their aerobic system as you bring up. And then he happens to have the talent to go 45 too. So yes, when you go in for a camp and then you walk away how much of these things we're talking about do they institute on a, on a, just a normal basis? Or do you come back the next year and they're kind of in the same place? How's it work? Well, for the most part, um, I have to rely on the fact that they're, the coaches are listening and the athletes are listening and so forth and so on. And I get feedback, but rarely am I going back to an, as an example in Asia. I mean, I was in Bangladesh, I was in Bahrain, I was in et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm just, and, and so going back usually is not in the cards. So I have to do it by feedback and email. And, and I, I would get positive comments a year later back from, from coaches and so forth that, that the camp helped or the clinic helped or. Yeah. Um, it's kind of anecdotal, right? It's anecdotal. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, but it's, I mean, you can only, you can only do so much and then you have to rely on who's coming beyond you. <laughs> right. In other words, if you're, if you're doing a clinic, I use, let's use Bill as an example, sweeten them. Sure. Bill is, is the most pragmatic human being I know. He goes in and he does, he does this big thing and camp and consulting and so forth and so on. And then he goes back to Australia. <laughs> and I can guarantee you, they listen to about that much. <laughs> and and he doesn't care. I mean, he, he cares, but he right. got paid well. Yeah. I don't have that kind of mentality. I, 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 it frustrates me if I go in and, 
and and work with a group, work with a group, especially leadership group in the sport of swimming, and then they they don't they don't heed anything. <laughs> it, it is it is to me the most frustrating thing in the sport. Yeah. Well, the last time I went to, to Alaska, was it Alaska or Canada? I, didn't, I can't remember. Alaska or Canada. I told them I'm not coming unless you give me your times from a year ago and your times now. And I can put it, I'll do it. I'll do the work. I'll put it in an Excel spreadsheet and we'll calculate the percentage improvement. And then I'll do your clinic because then I want your times from a year later, a year after I do your clinic. And if I look at it and it hasn't improved, I guess I'm not doing clinics anymore because I don't, I don't like it. I, first of all, it's time away from my family. I learned the hard way about that. It was a broken marriage. Um, uh, it's time away from my family. It's time away from, from my own swimmers. So if I'm, co if I'm coaching, um, it's time away from my writing and everything else that I consider important. And I don't want to just get a pat on the back. I want to know I actually made a difference because we do teach more than swimming. We do coach more than so many coach life skills. And if we teach these kids, it doesn't matter how fast they kick, then why are they kicking? If it, if it doesn't matter how many strokes they take, then why should they do it? And this generation, I don't know how anybody coaches this generation without giving them that kind of feedback. Because why in the world should they go longer? Why should they go shorter? Why should they go faster? In fact, what's in it for them? And now in college, you know, I'm coaching at college. I just looked at the AD yesterday and went, wow, we're, uh, we're actually finally we're getting people in here who make money <laughs> you know besides i mean they're swimming and they're making money oh what do you think about that you know as well it's just it's just what it is um but if you're gonna have to convince them that it's actually working i i think our way of thinking here is better for this generation than any other generation and when i when i was working with mark um you know a few weeks ago and over the last year he's giving them that feedback they're there. They know that he knows how fast they kick, how fast they pull, how fast they pulled a week ago. And he's got the brain for that. He doesn't have to keep it on, on, on uh, Excel. He just, he just really has a brain for that. But most of us probably should be, you know, taking it down, but it comes back to your point about the athlete who should be tracking themselves. <laughs> they could be, and then who's, they're much more motivated when they do that. Absolutely. I think this is all, I think this is what this is, is a wake up call. And I think that if we do it, what I thought was at the time, and again, this was in the middle of, you know, personal problems, but we were building this software and we were, we were getting times from Nick theory and we were figuring out who's the best teams. And we wanted to do it for college and for, for the age group programs in America across the board. So if you're in an LSC, you're the team that is improving people the most. What are you doing that's different? And when I first presented this, Bob Steele had me present it, the idea at the nationals, you know, they used to have those think tanks between trials and finals at nationals sometimes. He had yep. me present it one time and a coach came up to me and said, or he said, he said it out loud. He said to everybody, he goes, this isn't fair. The team down the street has a 50 meter pool and this and that, and we only have a 25 yard pool and blah, blah, blah. And I said right back to him publicly, I said, yes, but when we walk out of, the, of this place and we look at the, the sheets out there on the wall, Every one of our swimmers was rated to a hundredth of a second and there were no excuses. I go, I think we ought to hold ourselves to that, whether we have a 25 yard pool or a, uh, it's funny because Prado, I don't think he was in the room, but maybe he was, but he had a lousy situation, you know, when he, when he coached Jenny and, um, 
and she set the world American record and world record, you know, ended up on Olympic teams. Um, they're swimming in, you know, freezing water in the winter. No excuses. And the guy, the guy actually came up to me after the presentation, after we had talked and said, you know what, you're right. And I'm going to go back and I'm going to allow this to happen because I, they couldn't stop me from making it happen because I had Nick Theory's data. Now, USA Swimming has done, they have not allowed us to get this data, be able to show these things unless you go individual, swimmer by swimmer on each team or each individual coach gives you their data. I actually think it could happen, but it's got to be the, the, the coaches the coaches that really, really think buy into what you and I are talking about. Anyway, that's why I wanted to find out how you how you felt about camps and how you can uh, mentor teams. Obviously, Bill did a great job in England. I think they went from zero to sixty in twenty five or two seconds or something. Uh, it, it it was costly, but you're right. It doesn't. He doesn't let him bother him. <laughs> but they but but they gave but they gave him carte blanche. Yeah, and that's the difference. He went into Singapore. It wasn't carte carte blanche it was okay what do you think <laughs> yeah and, uh, but um singapore has come a long way though uh, they really have and uh but uh, and and they've you know they've, they i think joseph john dempsey was there and i came in afterward and and i think we had an impact but they they've they've really developed a local core of coaches now that are doing a much, much better job at the club level, at the National Institute. Um, they're, they're, doing a, they're doing a much, much better job. I think Gary Tan is the perfect choice to be their national coach. And, and uh, I think you're going to start seeing a lot, a lot of swimmers in Asia coming out of Singapore. I think the best guy in the country is still Vern Gambetta in terms of, of operating between stroke and, and strength. Um, I think he, he's, he's a functional dry land coach. Hmm. And I mean, very functional. Um, we still have, we still have collegiate swimmers and the club swimmers doing the old bench press and, you know, and so forth and so on. And, and it's, it's still the football machismo way of showing strength, which is, is quite frankly ludicrous. Um, but and injurious. I, I, as I yeah. say, I think Vern is, is by far the most dry land person in, in the country. And, and, and he's, he's worked with all levels of athletes. I think if you talk to um, Jim Richardson, he and Vern worked together at, when Jim was still coaching at, for the women's program at Michigan. Um, I'm trying to think of the team in, in Indiana. Um, very, very well-known team. Uh, but I'm drawing a blank on the name. Vern worked with them. He's working with Sarasota Sharks, um, and yeah. and, I, and I think that Brent Brent will tell you that that Vern had a tremendous impact on you know on his dry land program. That's funny that you bring that up. We we'll probably want to talk about that, but I'm gonna with all with all respect disagree 
Um, I'm going to be, and in fact, this, this month, you'll see a little bit of what Dr. Mike Yeses um, taught me and teaches the world, I think, about specificity of training. And as more specific Vern is than many uh, trainers, I think it can get better. Um, and I think Doc thought it could get better. And I think the thing that we, we see with, with um, what they did, I think that's been lost. And I'd love to, I'd love to see it come back. And some of that's isokinetic, you know, where it's accommodating resistance at the very specific motions that we need for the sport. There are some people say, well, you did that all in the water. <laughs> you know, we, I, I watch underwater a lot <laughs> and uh, no, you're, you're not training what you think you're training unless you're training what you think you're training, unless you're seeing what you think you're training. So um, that was one thing Ron and I talked about too, is, is enough. I think probably more underwater would be good for even for his program. So uh, I get to go to Las Vegas and, and, and bug him a little bit, and that's going to be kind of fun. And we'll see if, if we can help him get even better. I think he's one of the coaches <clears throat> that he's open to. And so one of the, one of the coaches where if you made him even better, because right now he could, he doesn't, but there are many coaches who get to that point and, you know, don't teach me anything. What, what I'm doing is working. Um, I think, the only way to prove that is yes, what you're doing is working, but there's this coach in the middle of podunk something and his swimmers are based upon their talent is closer to their talent in their two hundreds than anybody else in the country. Let's see what he's doing. I think that's where, I think that's where this data thing could really be going crazy. Wiska, by the way, has said they're very dedicated to this, but we'll, we'll see how far that goes. They've got a guy, a couple of people that are, really looking for the data. The problem is getting it. Um, and, and I think if we talk about it enough, maybe eventually somebody's going to come into USA Swimming that's going to go, all right, shut up. Here it is. You know, use it any way you want to. And you get the right statistician, put it together and you say, okay, but what are, how much dry land, what are they doing dry land that's working? And we actually get down to the nuts and bolts of truly being scientific in our sport. Do you get to that point where where you don't want to learn anything more, get out of the sport, please. Please. Yeah, absolutely. As, as, I mean, I, I'm out of the sport and I learn every day. <laughs> so I, and I keep thinking, you know, what can we do to improve? And, and I, I just, I, I just can't imagine not wanting to learn. Yeah. And, you know, from all kinds of areas, we always bring, you know, with the mag, if you read the magazine enough, you see a lot of things from business and other parts of our culture. And I think we can learn a lot from that. But, you know, if you look at, I was just funny because we have on the one side, I just said what I said about science. And on the other side, I got Bob Steele that I'm trying to interview and showing his things and, you know, the games and the gimmicks, the thing I'm against games and gimmicks is when you just throw them out there and you don't care. Now, Bob's kind of like Dave Salo where he walks in and he tells people, I just walk in with no plan at all. That's not the case. And Bob could come in and go, hey, if it isn't fun for me to watch, it isn't fun for them to do. Well, that's true. Um, you and I know that we've actually had swimmers who thought 100-100s was fun, you know? And so it's, and it might be individual. It might be your culture, your team culture, as it is in, in uh, Sandpipers, as we brought up a bunch of times. But I think it can all come together, but it's also a lot of fun trying to, trying to watch how different coaches with different personalities make things happen, some of which we can replicate, some of which I tell you one thing, I'm never going to be Bob Steele. And it's, 
it's I'm sad to say that I try to be as much as I can because he's he is fun, but he's he's and he's demonstrative and he's all that. I'm never going to be that who's the coach from uh, Australia was humping the the railing. Um, but I did say, and a bunch of people around me go, you're more like him than anybody I know. Cause when I coach, it's a little crazy, but you know, everybody's going to be a little different. You brought it up at the very beginning of this discussion is, is, is we do have different personalities and that's what makes USA swimming as good as it does, as it is. And I think we just need to take better care of how we help people to, to continue to be life, lifetime well, learners in the, in the sport. Coaching really is personality oriented. I mean, mm -hmm. I think I mean, Dick Jokums did pretty much the same workout every, every, not the same workout every day, but every week, it was yeah. pretty much the same. And, and yet they, they were very, very successful. That's again, that's his personality. Yeah. Um, Mark in the years of back in the seventies had the animal lane. Right. And so forth and so on. And it, it, it's it's all dependent on on how you present yourself as a coach and and how you sell your program. Mm. And if you're successful. You move forward. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I just I mean, I love it because it's, there there's so many different variations and but I think there's some very basic things in, in swimming that, that we need to stay with. I yeah. think that the Peter Andrews program probably should fit in some capacity in almost every program. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. As long, as long, at least in my opinion, as long as there is sufficient rest, recovery, and a great aerobic background. That, you know, Fale is a good example. He had something to prove. So, man, you know, he's going to go out there and prove it. And he did, I think. Um, but, you know, Dave, I think I won't say mellowed over the years, but I think he went farther over the years and started admitting that if you go enough 25, if you go short enough between the 25s, you're going aerobic, you know, and and I and he and he would say, and I think reasonably, if you go fast enough, <laughs> you're going to get an aerobic, you're going to get an aerobic uh, change. And um so, you know, we're all teaching each other. And I think that's a really cool thing. And as you say, if you ever get to the point where nothing else works, uh, but my way, then yeah, you, you should either hang it up or, or realize um, you, you, you better have the most talented swimmer on the planet because that's, you're, you're trying to prove something that's not going to be the case if you're not learning. There's going to be something, you know, you're going to get. Um, but it's Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.